Section 12 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. An Expedition to Mount St. Elias, Alaska, by Israel C. Russell. Part 2. Narrative of the St. Elias Expedition of 1890. Part 6 summit of pinnacle pass cliffs from camp fourteen crumback returned to blossom island and stamey took his place word from christie assured me that supplies would be advanced to blossom island and that our cache on the marvine glacier would be renewed stamey's arrival was especially welcome for the reason that he brought letters from dear ones far away which had been forwarded from sitka by a trading schooner that had chanced to visit yakutat bay while the camp hands were busy in bringing up fresh supplies kerr and i occupied two stations on the summit of the pinnacle pass cliffs one of these was on a butte at the western end of the ridge just above our camp the other was on the crest of the main line of cliffs almost directly above pinnacle pass at an elevation of five thousand feet each of the stations embraced magnificent views extending from the outer margin of the malaspina glacier to the crest of the st elias range the station on the butte near camp was occupied several times and proved to be a most convenient and commanding point for the study of geography geology and the distribution of glacier over a wide area on account of the splendid view obtained from the top we named it point glorious its elevation is thirty five hundred feet one of the days on which we occupied point glorious was especially remarkable on account of the clearness and freshness of the air and the sharpness with which each peak and snow-crest stood out against the deep blue heavens we left our camp early in the morning and spent several hours on the summit on our way up we found several large patches of alpine flowers and under a tussock of moss a soft warm nest just abandoned by a mother ptarmigan with her brood of little ones one hundred feet higher we came to the borders of the snow-field which covered all the upper slopes except a narrow crest of sandstone at the top the seward glacier sweeping down from the northeast curves about the base of point glorious and flows on southward its surface has the appearance of a wide frozen river toward the east of our station there was a broad level floored amphitheater bounded on the south by the cliffs of pinnacle pass and on the east by long snow slopes which stretched up the gorges in the side of mount cook the amphitheater opened toward the northwest and discharges its accumulated snows into the seward glacier beyond this on the north stood the great curtain wall named the corwin cliffs west of which rose mount eaton mount augusta mount malaspina and other giant summits of the main st elias range toward the west the view culminated in st elias itself ruggedly outlined against the sky as the reader will become more and more familiar with the magnificent scenery of the st elias region as we advance it need not be described in detail at this time all day the skies were clear and bright giving abundant opportunity for making a detailed survey of the principal features in view and for reading the history written in cliffs and glaciers when the long summer day drew to a close we returned to our tent and watched the great peaks become dim and generalized in outline as the twilight deepened the fading light caused the mountains to recede farther and farther until at last they seemed ghostly giants too far away to be definitely recognized with the twilight came soft gray uncertain clouds 
drawn slowly and silently about the rugged precipices by the summer winds from the sea st elias became enveloped in luminous clouds with the exception of a few hundred feet of the shining summit and a glory in the sky to the left of the veiled saint marked the place where the sun went down the shadows crept across the snowfields and changed them from dazzling white to a soft gray blue night came on silently and with but little change there was no folding of wings no twittering of birds in leafy branches no sighing of winds among rustling leaves all was stern and wild and still there was not a touch of life to relieve the desolation a midwinter night in inhabited lands was never more solemn man had never rested there before the air grew chill when the shadows crossed our tent and delicate ice crystals began to shoot on the still surface of our little pond we bade good night to the stern peaks about which there were signs of a coming storm and sought the shelter of our tent small and comfortless as was that shelter it shed out the wintry scene and afforded a welcome retreat sound refreshing sleep with dreams of loved ones far away renewed our strength for another advance the next day august eighth a topographic station was occupied on the summit of the pinnacle pass cliffs we were astir before sunrise and had breakfast over before four o'clock the morning was cold and a cutting wind swept down the seward glacier from the northeast all of the mountains were lost to view in dense clouds a few rays of sunshine breaking through the vapor banks above point glorious gave promise of better weather during the day lindsley and stammy had not yet returned from the lower camp where they were to obtain additional rations and kerr and i concluded to try to reach the crest of the pinnacle pass cliffs and take the chances of the weather being favorable for our work leaving camp in the early morning light we chose to climb over the summit of point glorious rather than thread the crevasses at its northern base reaching the top of the point we were still beneath the low canopy of clouds and could see far up the great amphitheatre to the base of mount owen footnote named for david dale owen united states geologist End footnote. descending the eastern slope we soon reached the floor of the amphitheatre and found the snow smooth and hard and not greatly crevassed cheered by faint promise of blue skies we pressed on rapidly the snow creaking beneath our tread as on a winter morning two or three hours of rapid walking brought us to the southern wall of the amphitheatre nearly beneath the point we wished to occupy as we ascended the slope the way became more difficult owing not only to its steepness but also to the fact that the snow was softening and also because great crevasses crossed our path looking back over the snow we had crossed two well characterized features on its surface could be distinguished these were large areas with a gray tint caused by a covering of dust this dust comes from the southern faces of the pinnacle pass cliffs and is blown over the crest of the ridge and scattered far and wide over the snow fields toward the north should the dust covered areas become buried beneath fresh snow it is evident that the strata of snow would be separated by thin layers of darker color this is what has happened many times as we could see by looking down into the crevasses in one deep gulf i counted five distinct strata of clear white snow separated by narrow dust bands in other instances there are twenty or more such strata visible each layer is evidently the record of a snowstorm while the dust bands indicate intervals of fine weather the strata of snow exposed to view in the crevasses after being greatly compressed are usually from ten to fifteen feet thick 
but in one instance exceeded fifty feet if we assume that each layer represents a winter's snow and that compression has reduced each stratum to a third of its original thickness and probably the compression has been greater than this it is evident that the fresh snows must sometimes reach the depth of from fifty to one hundred and fifty feet toiling on up the snow slope we had to wind in and out among deep crevasses sometimes crossing them by narrow snow bridges and again jumping them and plunging our alpenstocks deep in the snow when we reached the farther side after many windings we reached the summit of the pinnacle pass cliffs the crest line is formed of an outcrop of conglomerate composed of sand and pebbles in one layer of which i found large quantities of mussel shells standing in the position in which the creatures lived the present elevation of this ancient sea bottom is five thousand feet the strata incline northward at angles of thirty degrees to forty degrees all of the northern slope of the ridge is deeply covered with snow and the rock only appears along the immediate crest there are in fact two crests as is common with many mountain ridges in this region one of rock and the second of snow the snow crest which is usually the higher is parallel to the rock crest and a few rods north of it in the valley between the two ridges we found secure footing and ascended with ease to the highest point on the cliffs looking over the southern or rocky crest we found a sheer descent of about fifteen hundred feet to the snow fields below the clouds diminished in density and gradually broke away so that the entire extent of the st elias range was in view with the exception of the crowning peak of all which was still veiled from base to summit a spur of st elias extending southward from the main peak and named the chariot gleamed brightly in the sunlight it was the first point on which we made observations stretching eastward from st elias is the sharp crest of the main range on which stands mount newton jeanette malaspina augusta logan and several other splendid peaks not yet named just to the right of mount augusta on the immediate border of the seward glacier rise the corwin cliffs marking an immense fault scarp of the same general character as the one on which we stood mr kerr endeavored at first to occupy a station on the crest of the rocky ridge but as the steepness of the slope and the shattered condition of the rock rendered the station hazardous the snow ridge which was covered with dust and sand nearly as firm as rock was occupied instead the clouds parting toward the northeast revealed several giant peaks not before seen some of which seemed to rival in height st elias itself one stranger rising in three white domes far above the clouds was especially magnificent as this was probably the first time its summit was ever seen we took the liberty of giving it a name it will appear on our maps as mount logan in honor of sir william e logan founder and long director of the geological survey of canada the clouds grew dense in the east and shut off all hope of extending the map work in that direction while kerr was making topographic sketches i tried to decipher some of the geological history of the region around me and make myself more familiar with its glaciers and snowfields even more remarkable than the mighty peaks toward the north beheld that day for the first time was the vast plateau of ice stretching seaward from the foot of the mountains from my station what seemed to be the ocean's shore near icy bay could just be distinguished beyond the bay there is a group of hills which come boldly down to the sea and apparently form a sea cliff at the water's edge 
beyond this headland there is another vast glacier extending westward to the limits of vision the view from this point is essentially the same as that obtained from the cliffs at pinnacle pass a few days earlier except that it is far more extended it need not be described in detail the clouds becoming thicker and settling in dark masses about the mountains we gave up all hope of further work and started for our camp on the way down the ridge between the crest of snow and the crest of rock we found a stratum of sandstone filled with fossil leaves and near at hand another layer charged with very recent seashells collecting all these that we could carry we trudged on finding the snow soft and some of the bridges which we had easily crossed in the morning now weak trembling and insecure we crossed them safely however and reaching the level floor of the amphitheatre marched wearily on toward point glorious this time we passed along the northern base of the butte at an elevation of two or three hundred feet above the glacier and taking a convenient slide down the snow slope reached our tent soon a delicious cup of coffee was prepared bacon was fried and these were put in a warm place while some griddle cakes were being baked a warm supper followed by a restful pipe ended the day kerr and i were our own cooks and our own housekeepers during much of the time we lived above the snow line we cleared away the remains of supper and prepared our blankets for the night one of the huge ice pinnacles on the glacier fell with a great crash just as we were turning in rain began to fall and the night was cold and disagreeable how it passed i do not know as i slept soundly scarcely anything less serious than the blowing away of our tent could have awakened me across the seward glacier to dome pass stormy weather and the necessity of bringing additional supplies from blossom island detained us at camp fourteen until august thirteenth we rose at three o'clock on the morning of that day and after a hasty breakfast prepared to cross the seward glacier the morning was cold but clear and the air was bracing each peak and mountain crest in the rugged landscape stood out boldly in the early light although the sun had not risen soon the summit of st elias became tipped with gold and then peak after peak in order of their rank caught the radiance and in short time the vast snowfields were of dazzling splendor the frost of the night before had hardened the snow which made walking a pleasure we crossed a rocky spur projecting northward from point glorious into the seward glacier and had to lower our packs down the side of the precipice with the aid of ropes our course led at first up the border of the great glacier to a point above the head of the rapids already referred to then curved to the westward and for a mile or two coincided with the general trend of the crevasses we made good progress but at length we came to where the augusta glacier pours its flood of ice into the main stream and owing to its high grade is greatly broken skirting this difficult area we passed a number of small blue lakelets and reached the western border of the seward glacier we found a gently rising snow slope leading westward through a gap that could be seen in the hills a few miles in advance but little difficulty was now experienced except that the snow had become soft under the summer sun and walking over it with heavy loads was wearisome in the extreme we could see however that the way ahead was clear and that encouraged us to push on toward night we found a camping place on a steep ridge of shale and sandstone projecting eastward from a spur of mount malaspina this ridge rises about five hundred feet above the surrounding glacier and has steep roof-like slopes the summer sun had melted nearly all the snow from its southern face but the northern slope was still heavily loaded 
the snow on the north side stood some thirty or forty feet higher than the rocky crest of the ridge itself and between the rock crest and the snow crest there was a little valley which afforded ample shelter for our tent and was quite safe from avalanches the melting of the snowbank during the warm days supplied us with water the formation of crests of snow standing high above the rocky ridges on which they rest is a peculiar and interesting feature of the mountains of the st elias region a north and south section through the ridge on which camp fifteen was situated exhibiting the double crests one of rock and the other of snow is shown at a in figure six b is a section through a similar ridge with a still higher snow crest the remaining figures in the illustration are sketches of mountain peaks as seen from the south which have been increased in height by heavy accumulation of snow on their northern slopes these sketches are of peaks among the foothills of mount malaspina and show snow pinnacles from fifty to more than a hundred feet high in some instances domes and crests of snow were seen along the western sides of the ridges and peaks but as a rule these snow tips on the mountains are confined to their northern slopes the edges and summits of the snow ridges are sharply defined and clearly cut the southern slope exposed above the crest of rock is often concave while the northern slopes are usually convex in climbing steep ridges the double crests are frequently of great assistance safe footing may frequently be found in the channels between the crests of rock and snow by the aid of which very precipitous peaks may be climbed with ease in case the ascent between the two crests is not practicable the even snow slope itself affords a sure footing for one used to mountain climbing after establishing camp fifteen lindsley and stamy returned to one of the lower camps for additional supplies while kerr and i explored a way for farther advance our camp occupied a commanding situation. From the end of the ridge on which it was located, there was a splendid view of glaciers and mountains to the eastward. The illustration forming plate 18 is from a photograph taken from that station. Toward the north, and only a few miles away, rose the bare, rugged slope of Mount Malaspina. In a wild, high-grade gorge on its western side, a glacier all pinnacles and crevasses tumbles down into the broad white plain below on account of its splendid ice-fall this was named the cascade glacier beyond the white plain stretching eastward for fifteen or twenty miles there rise the foothills of mount cook farther south the rugged angular summits of the hitchcock range are in full view and toward the north stands mount irving footnote named in honor of professor roland dure irving u s geologist End footnote which rivals even mount cook in the symmetrical proportions of its snow-covered slopes the surface of the vast snow plain near at hand is gashed by many gaping fissures but the distance is so great that these minor details disappear in a general view looking down over the snow one may see the crevasses as in a diagram they look as if the white surface has been gashed with a sharp knife and then stretched in such a way as to open the cuts that the snow of the neves may be stretched at least to a limited extent is shown by the character of these fissures the crevasses are widest in the center and come to a point at their curving extremities two crevasses frequently overlap at their ends and leave a sliver of ice stretching across diagonally between them it is by means of these diagonal bridges that one is enabled to thread his way through the crevasses 
on returning to camp in the evening weary with a hard day's climb a never-failing source of delight was found in the matchless winter landscape to the eastward the evenings following days of uninterrupted sunshine were especially delightful the blue shadows of the western peaks creeping across the shining surface were nearly as sharp in outline as the peaks that cast them when the chill of evening made itself felt and the dripping water and the indefinite murmurs from the glacier below were stilled the silence became oppressive the stillness was so profound that it seemed as though the footsteps of the advancing shadows should be audible on warm sunny days however there are noises enough amid the mountains the snow partially melted and softened by the heat falls from the cliffs in avalanches that make the mountains tremble and with a roar like thunder awaken the echoes far and near during our stay at camp fifteen the avalanches were sometimes so frequent on the steep mountain faces toward the north that the roar of one falling mass of snow and rocks was scarcely hushed before it was succeeded by another on the southward facing cliffs of mount augusta composed of schist which disintegrates rapidly there are frequent rock avalanches a rock or a mass of comminuted schist sometimes breaks away even in midday although these avalanches occur most frequently when the moisture in the rocks freezes the midday avalanches i fancy may be started by the expansion of the rocks owing to the sun's heat a few stones dislodged high up on the cliffs fall and loosening others in their descent soon set in motion a train of dirt and stones which flows down the steep ravines with a long rumbling roar at the same time sending clouds of dust into the air if the wind is blowing up the cliffs as frequently happens on warm days the dust is carried far above the mountains and hangs in the air like clouds of smoke it has been frequently stated that st elias is a volcano and sea captains sailing on the pacific have seen what they suppose to be smoke issuing from its summit as its southern face is composed of the same kind of rocks and is of the same precipitous nature as the southern slope of mount augusta it appears probable that what was supposed to be volcanic smoke was in reality avalanche dust blown upward by ascending air currents the disintegration of the mountain summits all through the st elias region is so great that one constantly wonders that anything is left yet except late in the fall the snow surfaces at the bases of even the steepest cliffs are mostly bare of debris the absence of earth and stones on the surfaces of the neve fields is mainly due of course to the fact that these are regions of accumulation where the winter snow exceeds the summer's melting thus each year the surface is renewed and made fresh and clean and any debris that may have previously accumulated is concealed there is another reason however why but little debris is found at the bases of the steep precipices the snows of winter are banked high against these walls but when the rocks are warmed by the return of the summer sun the snow near their dark surfaces is melted and leaves a deep gulf between the upward sloping banks of snow and the sides of the cliffs these black chasms are frequently a hundred and fifty or two hundred feet deep and receive all the debris that falls from above in this way very large quantities of earth and stones are injected as it were into the glacier and only come to light again far down toward the ends of the ice streams where the summer's melting exceeds the winter's supply on august fourteenth kerr and i made an excursion ahead to the border of the agassiz glacier the snow slope south of our camp led westward up a gentle grade to a gap in the hills between two bold snow-covered domes 
the gap through which the snow extended uniting with a broad snowfield sloping westward was only a few hundred feet wide and formed a typical mountain pass designated on our map as dome pass its elevation is forty three hundred feet when near the summit of the pass a few steps carried us past the divide of snow and revealed to our eager eyes the wonderland beyond st elias rose majestically before us unobstructed by intervening hills and bare of clouds from base to summit we were greatly encouraged by the prospect ahead as there were evidently no obstacles between us and the actual base of the mountain a photograph of the magnificent peak was taken from which the illustration forming plate nineteen has been drawn to the right of the main mountain mass as shown in the illustration rises mount newton footnote name for henry newton formerly of the school of mines of columbia college and author of a report on the geology of the black hills of dakota End footnote. one of the many separate mountain peaks crowning the crest of the st elias range our way led down the snow slope in the foreground to the border of the agassiz glacier which comes in view between the foothills in the middle distance and the sculptured base on which the crowning pyramid of st elias stands after reaching the agassiz glacier we turned to the right and made our way to the amphitheatre lying between mount st elias and mount newton on the day we discovered dome pass we pressed on down the western snow slope and reached the side of the agassiz glacier which we found greatly crevassed selecting a camping place on a rocky spur we returned to camp fifteen and two days later established camp at the place chosen camp sixteen was similar in many ways to camp fourteen it had about the same altitude it was at the western end of a rugged mountain spur and on the immediate border of a large southward flowing glacier on the lower portions of the cliffs near at hand there were velvety patches of brilliant alpine flowers mingled with thick bunches of wiry grass and clumps of delicate ferns most conspicuous of all the showy plants so bright and lovely in the vast wilderness of snow were the purple lupins already the flowers on the lower portions of their spikes had matured and pods covered with a thick coating of woolly hairs were beginning to be conspicuous there are no bees and butterflies in these isolated gardens but brown flies with long pointed wings were abundant a gray bird a little larger than a sparrow was seen flitting in and out of the crevasses near the border of the ice apparently in quest of insects once while stretched at full length on the flowery carpet enjoying the warm sunlight a hummingbird flashed past me occasionally the hoarse cries of ravens were heard among the cliffs but they seldom ventured near enough to be seen these few suggestions were all there was to remind us of the summer fields and shady forests in faraway lands up the agassiz glacier from camp sixteen kerr and i made an excursion across the agassiz glacier while Stamey and Lindsley returned to a lower camp for additional supplies. We found the glacier greatly crevassed, and the way across more difficult than on any of the ice fields we had previously traversed. But by dint of perseverance, and after many changes in our course, we succeeded at last in reaching the western bank, and saw that by climbing a precipice bordering an ice cascade, we could gain a plateau above, which we knew from previous observations to be comparatively little broken we returned to camp and on august eighteenth began the ascent of the glacier in earnest we were favored in the task by brilliant weather after reaching the western bank of the glacier we made our way to the base of the precipice up which we had previously wished to climb 
in order to reach it however we had to throw our packs across a crevasse over which there was no bridge and followed them by jumping the side of the crevasse from which we sprang was higher than its opposite lip and left us very uncertain as to how we were to return but that was a matter for the future our aim at the time was to ascend the glacier and the return was of no immediate concern reaching the base of the cliff at the side of the glacier we ascended it without great difficulty and came out upon a broad plateau of snow above thinking that the way onward would be easier along the steep snow slope bordering the glacier we made an effort to ascend in that direction and spent two or three precious hours in trying to find a practicable route although the crevasses were fewer than on the glacier proper yet they were of larger size and had but few bridges at last we came to a wide gulf on the opposite side of which there was a perpendicular wall of snow a hundred feet high and all further advance in that direction was stopped although obliged to turn back our elevated position commanded a good view of the glacier below and enabled us to choose a way through the maze of crevasses crossing it descending we plodded wearily on in an irregular zigzag course but the crevasses became broader and deeper as we advanced and at length we found ourselves traversing flat table-like blocks of snow bounded on all sides by crevasses so deep that their bottoms were lost to view we made our way from one snow table to another by jumping the crevasses where they were the narrowest or by frail snow bridges spanning the profound gulfs night came on while we were yet in this wild broken region and no choice was left us but to pitch our tent in the snow and wait until morning the night was clear and cold and a firm crust formed on the snow before morning although the temperature was uncomfortable we were cheered by the prospect of a firmer snow surface on the morrow we continued our march at sunrise and found the walking easy but the sun soon came out with unusual brilliancy and softened the snow so much that even the slowest movements were fatiguing we endeavored to force our way up the center of the glacier through the crevasses and pinnacles of a second ice fall but after several hours of exhausting experience we were obliged to change our plan and endeavored to reach a mountain spur projecting from the western border of the glacier the sunlight reflected from the snow was extremely brilliant and the glare from every surface about us was painful to our eyes already weakened by many days travel over the white snow each member of the party was provided with colored glasses but in traversing snow bridges and jumping crevasses these had to be dispensed with the result was that all of us were suffering more or less from snow blindness about noon we reached the base of the mountain spur towards which our course was bent it projects into the western border of agassiz glacier it is the extension of this cliff underneath the glacier that caused the ice fall which blocked our way to go round the end of the cliff with our packs was impracticable but there seemed a way up the face of the cliff itself which one could scale by taking advantage of the joints in the rocks i ascended the snow slope to the base of the precipice but found the way upward more difficult than anticipated and as the light was very painful to my eyes when not protected by colored glasses i decided to postpone making the climb until i was in better condition and in the meantime to see if some other route could not be found we decided to camp on a small patch of debris near the base of the cliff and there left our loads kerr and lindsley taking a rope and alpenstocks went around the end of the rocky spur and worked their way upward with great difficulty to the top of the cliff immediately above where i had essayed to climb it the rope was made fast at the top and our way onward was secured 
This place was afterward called Rope Cliff. The remainder of the afternoon I rested in the tent with my eyes bound up with tea leaves, and when evening came found the pain in my head much relieved. Our tent that night was so near the brink of a crevasse that in order to stay the tent one end of the ridge rope was made fast to a large stone which was lowered into the gulf to serve as a stake. Above us rose a precipice nearly a thousand feet high, from which stones were constantly falling, but a deep black gulf intervened between the position we had chosen and the base of the cliffs, and into this the stones were precipitated. Not one of the falling fragments reached the edge of the snow slope on which we were camped, but many times during the night we heard the whiz and hum of rocks as they shot down from the cliffs. The noise made by each fragment in its passage through the air increased rapidly in pitch, thus indicating that they were approaching us, but they always fell short of our camp. The bombardment from above was most active just after the shadows fell on the cliffs, showing that the stones were loosened by the freezing of the water in the interstices of the rock. The next day, August 20th, Stamy and Lindsley went back to Camp 16 for more rations, while Kerr and I remained at Camp 18 nursing our eyes and resting. The day passed without anything worthy of note, except the almost constant thunder of avalanches on the mountains. About sunset, a dense fog spread over the wintry landscape and threatened to delay the return of the men. When the sun went down, however, the temperature fell several degrees, the mist vanished, and a few stars came out clear and bright. Just as we were about to despair of seeing the men that night, we heard a distant shout announcing their return. We had a hot cup of coffee for them when they reached the tent, which they drank with eagerness, but they were too tired to partake of food. Rolling themselves in their blankets, they were asleep in a few minutes. Camp on the Newton Glacier On August 21st, we climbed the cliff above Camp 18 by means of the rope already placed there, and found the snow above greatly crevassed. We traveled upward along the steep slope bordering the glacier, but soon came to a deep crevasse which forbade further progress in that direction. Returning to a lower level, we undertook to smooth off an extremely narrow snow bridge so as to make it wide enough to cross, but found the undertaking so hazardous that we abandoned it. By this time it was midday, and we prepared a cup of hot coffee before renewing our attack on the cliffs. After luncheon and a short rest, feeling very much refreshed, we began to cut a series of steps in a bluff of snow about fifty feet high, and made rapid progress in the undertaking. After an hour's hard work, one of us reached the top, and planting an alpenstock deep in the snow, lowered a rope to those below. The packs were drawn up one at a time, and we were soon ready to advance again. We found ourselves in a vast amphitheatre, bounded on all sides, excepting that from which we had come, with rugged, snow-covered precipices. The plain was crossed by huge crevasses, some of which were fully a mile in length, but by travelling around their ends, or crossing snow bridges, we slowly worked our way onward towards St. Elias. Threading our way through the labyrinth of yawning gulfs, we at last, after the sun had gone down behind the Great Pyramid toward the west, found a convenient place on the snow near a blue pond of water on which to pass the night. Everything was snow-covered in the vast landscape except the most precipitous cliffs, and these were dangerous to approach owing to the avalanches that frequently fell from them. The weather continued fine, the night was clear and the stars were unusually brilliant. Everything seemed favorable for pushing on. The way ahead presented such even snow slopes and seemed so free from crevasses 
that we decided to leave our tent and blankets in the morning and taking with us as little as possible of impedimentia endeavor to reach the summit of st elias end of section twelve